0: This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program today. You know, we all seem to be addicted to being busy and overwhelmed. Some of us are working 22 days in a row, not me, um, but one of my colleagues here said this morning when I was on air with her that she was very interested in this next subject because she had 22 days of work ahead of her, but then she was going to take, you know, completely disconnect and and rest after that. But some people cannot set boundaries and overcome the burnout that is seemingly the cultural norm today. Well, I'm delighted to have Jan Warehan on the line. She is the burnout queen and she's here to tell us what burnout is and what you can do about it. And also she has so graciously offered to give out five 30-minute coaching sessions to somebody. So if you know somebody who, or you need this, give us a call. one 877 9898 Thank you so much for joining me on the line from Edmonton, Jan.
1: Hi, Maureen. Nice to join everybody as well, too.
0: Oh, thanks so much. So, uh, burnout. I've been there. <laughs> I'll never go there. I'll never go there again.
1: Yes, most of us have. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, first of all, about some of the symptoms of burnout. And I'm sure a lot of you, um, your viewers can probably relate to this as well, too. Um I think probably one of the first uh, symptoms would be exhaustion. Uh, You know, we sort of feel like we're emotionally exhausted. We're depleted. We don't have any energy. It doesn't matter what we do. We just feel like we're exhausted. We have that sort of brain fog that comes about. And the reason that that happens is there's two things that are going on at the same time. Our, um, Our extreme exhaustion is causing our brain to slow down. Well, our drive to get things done is fighting to sleep. So we're actually working against the other. One is trying to slow down and get a rest. And the other part of us is like that Energizer bunny that says, no, go, 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 go.
0: Keep going, keep going at all costs.
1: Keep going, keep going. The Energizer bunny never burns out, does he? He does. Uh, (laughs) but, But the problem is, is that once you are at the point where you are burned out, It's really hard to recoup, and the only thing you can really do is you just have to get that sleep. If you don't get that sleep and kind of re-energize yourself, you're going to end up either seriously ill or in the hospital or even worse. Another thing that people might notice, too, is uh, once they're starting to wear down is that whole feeling of cynicism, you know, where you, um, you start your job and you really like it. And as time goes on, you know, you start to get this negative attitude towards the clients that you're working with, maybe the people, maybe you're in a toxic uh, environment as well. And over time, this really significantly affects both your work life and your personal life. And again, the reason that this happens is because it's a coping mechanism that we use to keep the stress and the burnout under control. And uh, one of the solutions that we can have is just to kind of, you know, try to resolve why this is happening. You know, what's, what's happened to, to get us in such a depressed state? And the third main cause of the symptoms of burnout would be feelings of inadequacy. You know, where you're feeling that uh, you're not accomplishing what you did, that you don't feel appreciated. Uh, and this. Once this starts happening, this feeling just kind of perpetuates itself that, you know, you're a failure, you're no longer effective in what you do. And again, the reason this has happened is because it's the chronic stress that's just kind of manifesting itself over an extended period of time. So we're using it as a defense mechanism. So probably the best thing that you could do, again, is just to kind of uh, get some, some professional help to kind of work through this.
0: Okay, Um, now the workplaces are very different today than they have been in in previous generations because Mm -hmm. many people don't know how to set limits and disconnect from the workplace, you know, shut it off at 5 o'clock or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're up all night on their computers. It's impacting their sex lives. It's impacting their intimate lives potentially. And also if they come home and they are cynical or they're exhausted, that's the number one reason for low sexual desire in women. And I really hate to be the bearer of this news, but according to a recent survey by Time Out New York, 39% of office workers admit to masturbating in the office John, slightly more than 31% of men that admitted to this in 2012, according to Glamour magazine. So, you know, this isn't hard and fast science, pun intended, but uh, <laughs> but it does say something about the workplaces and that if... Um, you know, men are taking a fair bit of time in the in the washroom, um, rubbing one out, if you will, uh, to decrease the stress as obviously, you know, that's the one of the most common mm. reasons, right? So we've got this um, exhaustion in the workplace. We've got this feeling of inadequacy that maybe we have to perform and be productive because that builds up our cup or fills up our cup. Mm-hmm. So why do you think we have all of this burnout in society?
1: Well, I, Probably one of the big reasons is that uh, a lot of us don't have uh, self-care strategies. You know, again, it's that uh, that motivation that we've got to do more in less time. Um, we get a lot of pressure for, from our employer. As many of us know, when somebody goes on leave or they're on holidays, employers often don't replace that person. That person that's leaving, their workload is just added to your workload, so I think that people have a hard time with self-care strategies, and that can include things like setting boundaries, that sort of thing. I think, again, when you're looking at things like that, we need to be able to set our priorities, you know, so that we know what we're doing for the week, and it's not just kind of haphazard and, you know, that sort of thing. Another self-care thing that we could look at would be exercise, maybe eating healthy. You know, doing things to kind of wind down, like reading a book, not necessarily a newspaper, but just to kind of sit down and to kind of unwind a little bit and read a book and just to become kind of centered and grounded, that sort of thing. So I think that that's all really important as far as, you know, Dealing
0: with the burnout. Right. And this is a huge depletion issue, really. And so do you ever see people who, uh, you know, moms, for example, they're working inside and outside of the home today. You know, they're still doing the lion's share of the housework. They've got the kids on the mind and their parents on their mind. And, you know, they've got so much to do. They're not paying attention to themselves. They're often not paying attention to their intimate to the intimate aspects of their relationships. So do you find that uh, those women are more prone to this? And do you ever see women who may require uh, treatment with uh, medication? Because it can mean that the serotonin levels are out of whack.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that that's a really good example because a lot of times when we talk about burnout, we do think about employer burnout. But, you know, For the stay-at-home moms, for example, or dads, you know, when you're at home all day with the kids, you know, I think that there's a misconception that, uh, you know, you just kind of sit around and you watch TV all day and, you know, you let the kids play and that sort of thing. But as we all know, anybody who's looked after small children, you're going all the time, you're cleaning the house, you're you're getting the meals ready, you're looking after the kids.
0: And, and I mean, some women I mean, find that boring as well, being at home. Uh, Jan, just one second. I have John yeah. from Calgary on the line. Hello, John. Hi there. How are you? All right. Good. When you're talking about
1: this uh, burnt, this burnout, uh, you, you you have never said nothing on how a person eats on it.
0: Well, I just started talking about it, John. <laughs> Yeah. What do you mean? Like, do you mean that they need to have eat healthily in order to, to prevent burnout? Yes. I agree with you. I think oh, that's. It, and it, Jen did like mention where,
1: that. It's like where I, I, I work like three months straight, uh, 12, uh, a, 12 hours a day. Uh huh. And it's where I never get the burnout. I watch what I eat.
0: And how, what do you eat? What do you cut out or what's important?
1: Uh, fruit and vegetables and then your meats
0: too very good well that sounds like a great plan jan
1: yeah i wish i could say that i used to be like that because when i was in high gear i was the complete opposite i was the drive-through queen i was eating in my car i was eating everything that i shouldn't eat and then when i'd come home You know, the last thing I'd want to do is make supper, so I'd be so tired. So what do I do? Get on the phone and have takeout.
0: Right. I have to say, when I had burnout, I was eating very healthily. Um, I had the same, you know, menu every single day. I remember my colleagues would say, here she is again eating, you know, I didn't eat bread. I didn't eat sweets. I was, you know, so I was eating as healthily as possible. Uh, but you know, there were other things that were falling away. You know, I had a little people pleasing going on. I'm a high energy person. I like people to be happy. Um, you know, so I, I was also, you know, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this for you, you know, overcompensating and, um, kind of a thing. So I, I remember, you know, just getting depleted and, um, But I'm going to ask you to stay on the line, Jan, because I want to talk a little bit about how employees can manage burnout. We're going to go to break right now, but um, how can people who are in today's working world, this chronic over busyness, this volunteering here and you know entering marathons there and raising the kids and, and dealing with the parents and you know not having time to have sex with your partner. So how can people manage burnout and prevent it in the workplace so that they actually have a better home life? And right now we're going to go into what you can do to improve your self-care strategies to prevent burnout. Jan, thanks so much for staying on the line. And I also want to say, We have a winner, Jan. Uh, Alana from Cold Lake, Alberta, has won the 530 Minute Coaching Package. So congratulations, Alana. That's awesome. Yes,
1: congratulations.
0: Yeah, so how can people, and this can happen to men and women. I was focusing a little bit more on women, and not to say that men don't have it tough today, and they certainly do. There's a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. to perform, in inside and outside of the bedroom (laughs) there's a lot of pressure at work to be the principal breadwinner for a lot of men that traditional ideology still exists and men put this pressure on themselves that it's attached to masculinity and and that their self-worth and this type of thing so men can certainly get burned out as well and they need time off and they need to regroup but what are some of the self-care strategies that you recommend to people
1: well i've got Few self-care strategies and i'd also like to talk a little bit about how we can change things what we do at work but definitely some of the self-care strategies would be things like minimizing you know the use of alcohol or caffeine you know uh like your caller had suggested follow a healthy eating plan because i think that that makes a big difference one of the big things too is if we are able to take a little bit of time away from work you know um Most of us feel that, uh, you know, guilty if we take time off work because we're putting a burden on somebody else. But I think it's really important sometimes if we take those little bit of a break and to do something like maybe find something relaxing like a creative outlet. For me, I'm a dog person, so I like to get involved with uh, any kind of animal activities. My dog and I are involved in um, uh, going to different... uh, communities uh, and uh just doing kind of like a therapy dog mm-hmm. so that's kind of like my creative outlet but people could do all sorts of things as far as work i think that there's some simple things that we could do such as one of the big things would be multitasking and again it goes back to that energizer bunny sort of uh, breakdown um you know just to kind of if you're having problems, just go and talk to your manager to see if you can kind of renegotiate what your workload is like to kind of assess your priorities. One of the big things, and I was really guilty of this was not taking my break. You know, I would get focused on something and I'd work through breaks. I worked through my lunch hour. I'd be eating my lunch at my desk over the, you know, working on the computer and you'd never really get a break. And, uh, the other thing, too, is when you go away and take a break on your holidays, leave your computer behind. And again, that was one of my bad habits is I always thought, oh, gee, I should check and see what's going on at work. And I'm supposed to be on holidays. And here I am checking my work computer, answering emails. So I think that that's something people at work should really try to see if they could do.
0: Excellent advice. Um and, you know, it's this is going to be really hard for people because a lot of people get a lot of pleasure and they, you know, mm-hmm. they can almost be addicted to work. Uh, they can be addicted to wealth. They can be addicted to their computer and their iPhone and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all that sort of thing. Um, but what are, how ill do you see people getting?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of underreported illness. And in the corporate world, you would Never mention that you're burned out because that's just the kiss of death for any kind of corporate promotion. But I think statistically, if you looked, you would see that there's a lot of people that are missing time from work. There's a lot of uh, mental health. There's a lot of physical uh, deterioration. So I think it's really underreported.
0: I agree with you. Absolutely. And, you know, when people don't necessarily prioritize their relationships and this, if you do self-care strategies and start exercising taking better care of yourself every domain of your life can improve and uh, from from weight to friendships to which is you know really important especially as people age. Um, so it's great advice Jan I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, your website is the burnoutqueen.com May I suggest you book an appointment with Jan? <laughs> Jan's in Edmonton, Alberta, by the way. So for those of you who are local in Edmonton, that uh, might be nice. So Jan, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Well, it's been my pleasure. Well, it was awesome information, and I think it's critical in today's world. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Every year in Canada, approximately 4,000 people die by suicide. It is the leading cause of death among Canadian men, between the ages of 25 and 29, and 40 and 44, and among Canadian women, between the ages of 30 and 34. It is the second leading cause of death among children 10 to 19 and young people 20 to 29. Donalene Saul lost her younger brother to suicide in 2004, and she offers a path of healing from this terrible loss. She's a writer's coach, a journal writing instructor, and an author, And she is author of the book did you know i would miss you and she joins me on the line from salt spring island british columbia hello donnelly oh hi maureen how are you
2: oh i'm well thank you good real honor to be on your
0: show oh thank you so much it's a real honor to talk to you i loved your book even though i cried through most of it oh Uh, um i have fortunately never lost anyone yet, Aww. shall I say, to death by suicide. Yeah. And I'm terribly sorry for the loss of your brother. It was a it's a heart-wrenching story and, and just mm-hmm. the way I've never read anything that articulated so well the, the sadness, the shame, the guilt, the stigma, the pain of mm-hmm. death by suicide. I have a number of patients and colleagues and friends who have lost a parent to death by suicide. Oh, my and um, and it has affected them, you know, for decades,
2: yes, yeah. it's a deep, deep loss. There's no doubt about
0: it. It certainly is. So thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, and I think it's welcome. important to say that it's not just a book for uh, those of you who've lost somebody by uh, death. By suicide, but it's also a book for anyone who has lost anybody because it's a it's one of the best grief books I have ever read, and so mm-hmm. it's for everyone to read. I really think it's important. You explore a lot of different uh, truths about life, like death, that we don't mm-hmm. talk about. Mm-hmm. There's still well, thank you. <laughs> subjects beyond sex that are taboo, and and death is one of them. And mm-hmm. um, but. Tell me what prompted you to write this book.
2: Well, um, I I had been a professional writer uh, throughout most of my adult life, and then um, it was kind of a natural thing for me to do. I I'd been in uh, you know seeing a counselor uh, shortly after my my brother's death, and kind of looking around the literature in their office, I didn't really see anything. about the soul journey of a suicide survivor, you know, and I really felt like I wanted to explore that in writing. And, uh, and so I decided to write the book. I mean, it took me quite a while to put it together because once when facing that kind of loss, it affects it, it, it's shattering. Um, And so it takes a while to kind of get the coherence together to, to, um, to write a book but I, uh, it felt important for me to do it, not just for my, myself and hopefully for other people that would benefit from it, but also for the sake of my brother, because I wanted to put another face uh, on on him besides the, you know, the fact that the guy had killed himself. I mean, he had many accomplishments in his life. He, was, uh, he had a lot of goodness and humor and talent and intelligence. And so I felt like I wanted. It was kind of a tribute to him
0: too, in some ways. Because there's still a stigma associated with death by suicide, yeah. and yes. and so you were railing up a little bit against that uh, stigma, yes. I, I gather. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it wasn't like I faced a lot of condemnation. I mean, it, it's not like you know the days where you you know people who've lost them the suicide be driven out of town and you know all that kind of thing. It was, but it, it sort of resides within the you know it's 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 unconscious in in many
0: of us it is and right? i and i know my yeah. my patients have told me that that it's not that anybody it's it's people have overwhelming compassion for them when they hear that they lost a loved one by death by suicide um but mm-hmm. it's something that they feel they feel this embarrassment this shame they don't want to mm-hmm. say that somebody that they loved took their own life something no. else you address in the book is the what if and yeah. so it's that what-if question. So we've just had Christmas, and, and there's a bit of a protective factor around yeah. Christmas and Boxing Day because there's more socialization happening, there's events, there's dinners, people feel that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm needed, I'm wanted, I'm part of this group. But but that yeah. can wane after the holidays, and death by suicide can actually increase in, in January. Does, yeah,
2: and that's right. Yeah, in the last first couple of weeks of January, yeah. Particular.
0: Right which is the time that we have right now. And, Mm -hmm. and so you, you reviewed some of those what ifs in your book and, you know, what if I had done this and tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, I mean, what, the, what if kind of the most, you know, least helpful kind of question uh, that you can ask yourself, but, you know, for me, like with my brother, like uh, what if I'd gone to visit him more, you know, what if I'd, uh, invited him to come stay with me, uh, what if I'd questioned him further when he'd said he was going to be moving, he'd uh, given up his place and was moving to Calgary for work? Why, what if I'd, you know, pursued that more? As it turned out, that wasn't the case. That's when he took the final road trip and ended his life in Saskatchewan. So, I mean, there's so many what-ifs, and they, are, they really can take us out. You know, in much the same way as why questions can. Like, of course. Why did it happen? Why me? Why him? I mean, there's no answers to those kind. Of, not. There's no satisfying answer to a why question, or, or to a what if kind of uh, question. It, it's and, futile. And it just almost. makes it feel worse.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, something I loved that uh, you wrote in the book was it's difficult to see into the brains and hearts of many people. And many people assume that uh, depression is the cause of death by suicide. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, But there are a number of... So it's hard to know the cause because, surprisingly, I didn't realize this, so few people leave notes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised about that, too. My brother didn't leave a note either. Um, Yeah, I, I... I, at that, yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's a, a good thing. I mean, sometimes in that state of darkness, people will leave a note behind, but it won't be a full statement of their heart. It will, you know, be a statement of a particular hopelessness, you know, and desperation. And uh, so in some ways, perhaps the mystery is better than, you know, I don't know that we can, Yeah, the uh, the heart, a person's heart is an ultimate mystery. I don't know that we can ever truly know, you know, I mean.
0: Absolutely, Uh as is the mind. Um, As is the
2: mind, yeah. Yeah, so
0: we don't really know what people are thinking or what's going on in their heart. There are a number of common social factors that are associated with being at risk for suicide. What are some of those, Donnelly?
2: Well, I mean, my brother kind of ticked pretty well every box. I've just got some notes here. I'm just trying to find that. But he he lived on his own. He was... um, Fifty-four years old, which is this, within that age group that's at risk. Which he is twenty-five running,
0: to eight to twenty-five to fifty-four is the yeah. He was age range. right mm-hmm.
2: at the top end of that. He was uh, in a profession that was dangerous. He was an independent logger, uh, financially um, un- insecure. Um, not a lot of social support to I me. Mean, he had close friends, but he lived in a isolated uh, kind of. He often didn't. He didn't have a phone number often. Um, uh, I don't know. It's just a, he'd broken up with a girlfriend within the last few years of his life, right? Um,
0: and not yeah, too connected just, to health the, to the health authorities.
2: No, no, was suspicious of that. He didn't even want to have anything to do with it. At, at one point, um, he had uh, uh, called the police when he was staying at her mother's place because he was concerned that he was being followed by hell's angels, which would not would not likely be the case. He was a uh, pretty peaceful soul but and the police persuaded him to admit himself to hospital and but he didn't remain he he left shortly because he felt like he wasn't nearly as badly off as the others that were there and the doctor uh, said in his report that, that he was not at risk for suicide so even the medical professionals can't see into a person's heart and mind you know so it's Right. yeah,
0: it, it, You know, there, there's some indication, perhaps, um, with all due respect, that maybe he yeah. did have a significant mental illness. There was mm-hmm. mention of schizophrenia. Yeah. yeah, Is it any more of a comfort, if you will, and I, you know, dare I use that word, uh, to know mm-hmm. that um, for, for suicide survivors, um, that maybe this was the result of a mental illness, a life that was just psychologically too challenging, too hard, too dark?
2: Yeah, I I guess there is a, you know, I, I, uh, at the, when he first, when I first heard of his death, I mean, I felt, I mean, sorrow, but I also felt some relief because I knew he'd been suffering, um, but not, I didn't, uh, didn't really, I don't think it wasn't something that we really wanted to look at as a family, quite honestly, you know, um, we, we knew he was troubled. He would always put on a brave face for family gatherings and so on, for the most part, except toward the end.
0: And did and, you worry uh,
2: about suicide? Yeah, um, I never thought about suicide relative to him, oddly enough. But I, I worried about what he would, how he would manage, you know, how he would be able to take care of himself. Because you can't be an independent logger, you know, into your 60s and 70s, you know, and you know what I mean? It's... Uh, so I did worry about him in that respect. You know, he's a a handy kind of a guy, but um, he
0: was also very artistic.
2: Yeah. But he was artistic. He was literary. He, you know, read, you know, James Joyce and stuff like that, which you know, a lot of you know English majors have trouble with. You know, he was um, a good writer, a poet. He liked to play the the blues harp. Yeah, um, yeah. He was also a really good carver. He made really fantastic. Uh, carvings of birds, and uh, I actually found some people that were interested in, in, you know, retailing them for him, but he just didn't have really the patience to, right. to deal with that stuff. It didn't really fit the mold, any kind of mold.
0: Right. And kind did of- your mom say... That he was—I uh, know you took care of him, if you will, as an older sister does a little brother.
2: Mm-hmm. And I have
0: a little brother, and um, yeah. I still mm-hmm. take care of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we're great friends, but uh, I get that. Um, but did he have trouble um, as a child? Did your mom think he no, was different? No, he was a
2: happy kid. Yeah. No, he people referred to him as a merry boy. You yeah. Know? He's a red-haired, kind of impish. Um, I took life a lot more seriously than he did. You know, he was kind of didn't you know was didn't have problems breaking the rules. You know, right? Rule bound. of was the oldest. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so no, it didn't show up until later on. Um, and but- even then, we were, nobody really we didn't really think it was a mental illness. We just thought well, he's kind of paranoid. But um, he, but he was still very func- uh, high functioning in the sense that you know he held down jobs and. You know, wrote great letters and
0: and girlfriends and I yeah. had, had
2: girlfriends to a degree. Yeah. He could have, I mean, he was kind of shy, but yeah, and yeah. really good friends, uh, many of whom we hadn't met until his uh, memorial service because our family was scattered around across the western provinces because oh, yeah. of uh, being at the influence of the RCMP. We'd, mm-hmm. uh, we we. All lived in different provinces when we left home. Right, right. But he had very, you know, very loyal and admiring friends, and that was really
0: really happy to see that. Not a surprise at all, given how no. you described him. You know, I think yeah. we underestimate, I think we can't get an accurate count of how many people die by suicide. We say four to 6,000 annually in Canada, yeah. but, you know, there's such a stigma in Christian yeah. communities in the Middle Ages. You touched upon this. Those who died by suicide yes. were treated as the lowest of criminals, so we still have that stigma that's associated with it, but so many people are affected by this. It's something like 77 to 300 for every person who dies by suicide. We have to think of the grandparents and the cousins and the friends and their employers. Um, so I'd like you, if you don't mind, stay on the line. And, um, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the work that you do, um, in your workshop facilitation and the coaching Mm -hmm. to help people to get through and deal with this human journey, uh, that Mm -hmm. they are on when they lose somebody to death by suicide. And on the line is Donnalene Saul. She is the author of Did You Know I Would Miss You? The Transformational Journey of the Suicide Survivor. Thanks so much for hanging on the line, Donnalene. I appreciate it. Um, so your work has led you to coach other people, to support other people, to facilitate workshops. How can people heal from this significant and heartbreaking loss and often most often, unexpected.
2: Well, I mean, um, there's a there's kind of the immediate term, which is taking care of yourself and your your physical well being, and um, uh, you know, t- attending to the details that are you know that are, that are part of the you know aftermath of a death by suicide. I was fortunate enough that I was able to team up with my sister. We were on side with that, and she was a huge help with with me, for me, and for we were for one another in just dealing with things, like going through my brother's effects and all that sort of thing. So there's the practical side of things that sort of occupy you, your own physical well-being. And I think probably one of the most important things to do off the top is to focus uh, is to put your focus on who the person it was apart from that final act you know they who they were are, and were as a human being i mean it's, it's that i think needs to be in, in the foreground otherwise you get lost in that one event it was and certainly it's Shocking, and uh,
0: so many people are so yeah. angry. That's another yeah, emotion you talked about that. in your book. Yeah. um mm-hmm. you know, a, a father of many children, and you know, husband yeah. uh, to a wife yeah. who is, you know, mm-hmm. takes his own life at a critical time in their yeah. marriage yeah. and in their life, and they're shocked and stunned. How do they deal with that anger?
2: Well, I mean, I think uh, I think it's important to get some kind of counseling help if you if you can. There's um, I mean fortunate in Vancouver to have uh safer uh, that's a um I'm trying to get what that acronym stands for um and you, oh, suicide you recommend follow up okay. education and research they provide okay. free counseling um the crisis line or in most communities and can certainly hook you up with uh that kind of help i think it, it is a it's a it's a crisis when you lose someone to suicide and especially in the circumstance you describe. Um, it's a physical crisis as well as a psychological one, and I think needs to be treated as that and and where possible to get some kind of professional help.
0: Right, and if you're feeling suicidal right now, it is important that people call um, the crisis helpline. Uh, yeah immediately, or have somebody call on your behalf. Mm-hmm. you also recommend journaling, but we've got to um, yeah. head on over to break now. Um, I recommend uh, this book. Did you know I would miss you and you've offered so graciously to give one out to um, a listener? so if you want if you'd like to read this incredible book, um give us a call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight Donalene, thank you so much for You're so welcome, sharing your story and uh, sharing um, your wisdom in terms of helping other people who have suffered uh, this tragedy. Uh, right. life is really my hard pleasure. I uh,
2: dedicate this to my brother.
0: Oh, thank you. And your brother's name? You want Steve. to tell everybody it was Steve. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I'm certainly I'm certain he's still missed many years later by his loving mm-hmm. family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for your work. Much appreciated. Okay, Maureen. Thank you. It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. Okay, time for The Bedroom Bulletin, my favorite part. You know, your relationship may have taken a little bit of a dive over the holidays because of the stress and the busyness and the expense, Now you're looking at the credit card bills and not each other. There are a number of reasons why a couple's sex life takes a dive in the wrong direction, I might say. Not the good kind of dive, but the bad kind of dive. You might not be in the same mood at the same time to to enjoy each other's company, shall we say. You may be distracted by stress or other factors. You may have lopsided libido. That can happen very commonly, especially as the relationship, dare I say, wears on. So there's so many different reasons why you might be distracted from sex, or it's just getting boring, it's the same old, same old, or as you advance in age and you're not exercising, there may be some medical causes uh, that are related to low intimacy rates in a couple, but Uh, Many women may experience sexual pain due to decreased estrogen receptors in the urogenital tract. There are skin conditions you may have, autoimmune disorders, pain conditions due to overgrowth of nerves, uh, vaginismus, there's depression, anxiety. There are lots of different reasons for um, your tanking sex life, your tanking intimate life. Well, I'm delighted to have on the line with me from Edmonton where she... Uh, spends half of her time the other half in uh, Los Angeles is Kat Tremarco and she is a spiritual life coach uh, and a sex educator and uh, hello Kat Hi Maureen Thanks for joining me on the line You're also a speaker and a published author and writer You are a multi-talented woman All the things (laughs) Excellent, excellent (laughs) Um, My only regret is I I actually uh, you know I, I Heard about you, and I was so excited to have you on the program. So, I am still looking forward to reading your book called Self Approved. It's a bit of a memoir and it uh, forges the, your experiences of your own personal journey and upbringing and your thoughts about yourself. Um, so, I'm very excited to read that book, and uh, I think it would be great for the listeners to read that as well Self Approved by Kat Tramarco. Mm-hmm. So, Kat, tell me a little bit about why you got into this area of um, care. For you, you, deal mainly with women, I gather, um, helping them to reclaim their sense of themselves, reclaim their sex, and, and ultimately reclaim their lives. Yeah, well, it was so it was
3: amazing just catching the last little bit of what you were um, what you were teaching on and talking about as I as I was waiting on the other line in terms of libido. And what
1: I've noticed is that
3: a lot of what I do with the women I work with is approaching libido and sexuality from the different layers of our being, because there's so much emphasis on the physical body and the physical expression, but often within that, the emotional, the mental and the energetic layers get missed. And there's such a huge component to being connected to our sexuality and So a little bit of my own personal journey of what sent me down this path in terms of the sexuality work I do is I was never able to orgasm with men. And I could orgasm very, very easily on my own self-pleasuring. And as soon as I was with a partner, I just couldn't. It was like something in me shut down. And it seemed to not matter what I did physically, like what techniques we used or what different toys we brought in to, to, uh, to intercourse and to play. I just I couldn't orgasm with a man. And so I started looking into these deeper layers of like, well, what's going on emotionally? What are my beliefs about myself as a sexual being and my beliefs about myself as a sexually embodied woman and my judgments towards myself or towards my own erotic expression. And it was as I dove into these layers and started to like heal and uncover um, that I was really able to find my own pleasure, like from the inside out. And so that's so much of what I now help other women with is looking at all these, these layers within our being that often get missed when we're talking about our sexuality.
0: And what um, did you find in those layers? what What are the issues that women are facing that um, affect their sexuality or their ability to experience orgasm or get aroused?
3: Yeah, the two biggest ones in those layers is is one, like judgments. So looking at what judgments do I have towards myself as being a sexually embodied woman, or what have I made it um, mean? for other women to be sexually embodied. So for myself, I started looking at one, really have always had a judgment about women who are sexually expressed openly. So looking at those judgments and dismantling them, because anything we're judging within another, we can't express within ourselves. So that's one area I like to go into. And then the other is, and this can get pretty deep, but to like summarize and explain it in as short as time as possible is, Pleasure. And we, so we grow up in a culture, we grow up in a society that doesn't value pleasure. We value hard work, we value effort, we value very masculine, energied qualities and traits. And so if we have a mental dynamic and an underlying belief system that being in deep states of pleasure is bad or is wrong or is somehow taking away from productivity in life, and I see this come up a lot for with moms, because it's like taking away something, then that's a belief system that we have to dive into and rewire the belief system that pleasure is actually helping fuel how you be in all other areas of life. So those are like the two biggest ones, I would say.
0: And so it's education often, or lack thereof, or poor education, poor sexuality education that leads women to uh, place less of an importance on pleasure. And, you know, we, we don't educate about it at all. So is it a matter of education, edu- of educating women? Like I find in my clinical practice, I will say to women, and I learned this from a patient, I was stunned. I'd had an hour and a half consult with her and kind of toward the end of it, I'd asked her why she wanted to get back with this abusive, alcoholic, ex-husband of yours who was financially controlling and had cheated on mm-hmm. her with 500 women and, um, mm-hmm. and I said you know be, and you never even enjoyed having sex with them so I said after all sex is for you and she said that was the most profound thing that I said in the entire hour and a half and I realized yeah. you know I learned from her that I needed to share that with other women because other women had that false belief as well so is it education um you know that about pleasure that pleasure is okay it's guilt free it's you know how do you get women to believe that and understand the value of pleasure
3: yeah i think education is huge and that's something i'm always talking about is like our education growing up most of us around sex was horrible or there was none at all and i even grew up in a household where my mom was pretty open about talking about sex. I mean, from the time me and my brother were teenagers, she I put con- boxes of condoms in the bathroom and I'll never count them. Like, just tell me when they were, like, she was really emphasized. Like, there's no judgment. I know that you're going to be participating in these activities. Like, do it safely. Um, and even still, yeah, there's no education around pleasure. There's only safety education unless we go out and seek it ourselves. So one of the systems that I actually work with is called the erotic blueprints. And what they are is they're similar to, I like to compare them to the five love languages um, by Gary Chapman. And the five love languages are like how we give and receive love. Mm -hmm. And the erotic blueprints are how our bodies and our psyches are uniquely wired to give and receive sexual pleasure, so that piece um, that piece of work is was formulated by a woman named Jaya, who's a somatic sexological body worker for over twenty years, and I came, I went on to become one of her certified educators and coaches because this body of work changed my life so much because it gave exactly what you're saying. It was like the foundation for understanding sex. From a pleasure standpoint, not from an anatomy standpoint or a safety standpoint or a service it,
0: standpoint.
3: It, exactly, yeah. And what you were saying about, yeah, for sure. My old belief system was sex was about pleasing a man, and so it wasn't even I was I was never even tuned in or tapped into my own pleasure. It was like, how can I give? How do I look sexy? How do I arouse him? It was never about me as the woman, I think
0: a lot of women experience that. I, I totally agree with you. So many women view this as a, a service industry in their own home. Um, I have a an, an email from a listener. Dear Maureen, mm-hmm. I believe I have hypoactive sexual desire disorder. I just actually learned about this disorder recently and it really hit home. I had no idea it was a disorder and just thought it was because I'm getting older that this happens. I'm 45 and have no desire whatsoever. I love my husband. I'd love to fix it. Uh, When I was Mm -hmm. younger, I didn't have this issue. So this is hypoactive sexual desire disorder, as a little background, is when there's no sexual thoughts or fantasies and no desire for sex for the last six Mm -hmm. months, 75 to 100% of the time, as a very simple Mm -hmm. um, uh, definition of it. So somebody's mind is shut down. How would you deal with somebody like that? Because the automatic response here, perhaps for a medical practitioner, would be there's a medication that's available in Canada um, Uh and in the U.S. uh, called Addy for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. But is there a way we can tap into the spirituality side uh, of a woman or tap into her thoughts um, prior to going to medication? And how would you do that? Yeah, um,
3: this is where I would pull in the blueprints. And I always say, I would say this to my clients and anyone, like when I'm teaching a workshop or a class is, like we need to take the definition of sex and expand it way out to mean something beyond intercourse, but even beyond genital touch. Because sex, sexual energy, it's an energy, it's a life force energy. So when we're looking at those five blueprints, some of the blueprints, the way in which in which they're wired is not driven towards intercourse or direct genital touch. Like, for example, one of the blueprints is um, energetic, which is mostly fed by indirect touch and tease and anticipation and connection and intimacy. So, and, and that's how I was wired. So for so long, I would, like, short-circuit if my genitals were touched too quickly or if anything got even physical too quickly. And I didn't understand that. So my like advice to, to this woman who's writing in is that, yeah, to take your mind and expand it that beyond physical sex or genital touch, because there's so many ways to engage in different forms of touch and intimacy that can be very pleasurable with taking genitals completely off the table, um, and we're so conditioned to look at sex as a one size fits all, and and it's really not. So Absolutely. that would be a beautiful like alternative in addition to like whatever uh, medical. That the doctor would be offering there
0: too. Exactly, and uh, I say explore every arena, every area um, prior mm-hmm. to going on medication. Um, many, many women, as you are aware, are sexually assaulted, or sexually abused, or have unwanted sexual advances as children, as little girls, mm-hmm. as adolescents. Many have experienced rape. They they describe to me they hate sex. They feel that sex is dirty. How do you help women who have been sexually abused through, spiritual, through spirituality or spiritual awakening?
3: Yeah, so I don't, I don't work with trauma specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and given saying that, I believe that most of us as women, and often men too, have some level of trauma or have internalized something as a traumatic event. Um, so if someone's dealing with deep trauma, I have people who are trauma specialists that I usually refer out to. But one angle that I like to take with that is relearning. First, looking at that that can be often a reason to be then shut down with a partner, right? Because if yes. it's not safe to act, to be embodied in my sexual energy, if it this is this is an example I like to give is it's so such a contradiction that as women were not supposed to be embodied in our sexual energy out in the world, but then we're, su- because we- for protection, for safety, because there's a legitimate fear of I might be attacked, I might be violated, I might be raped. And then we're supposed to flick the switch on when it comes time to be intimate with a partner. And it creates an internal contradiction. So the angle that I like to come at from this is to, to teach a woman how to feel safe in her sexual energy by herself again. So to become intimate with that energy internally again on her own, and then really learning how to create boundaries. And the way that I look at sexual boundaries is there's physical boundaries, but there's also energetic boundaries in knowing how to navigate your own sexual energy. When is it turned on? When is it turned off? It can be, it's it's like a dimmer switch on a light almost where you can, start to control how turned up or how turned down it is. And I find that helps women feel safe and feel more in control of their own sexual energy. And then to also feel safe turning that, Full on uh, and when reclaiming they want
0: to. and reclaiming what was stolen from them. From them, yeah. Cat Trimarco, I wish we had more time. Your it was excellent information. Thank you so much. I'll definitely have you back. You're so uh, welcome. Her website is cat trimarco k a t t r i m a r c o dot com. That's k a t t r i m a r c o dot com. Thanks again, Cat. I really appreciate all the information.
3: You're I- welcome. It
0: was my pleasure. Thanks, Maureen. You're- You've been listening to another.